Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis. I'm joined by Stefan Voyer, Barry Kassen, and our guest presenter, Peter Van Stolk. Peter, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're uh, we're all really excited to uh, listen to the case that you've brought. You and I have worked together before, and uh, we've seen some re- really wonky stuff. So I'm ready to have my mind blown. Perfect. Well, let's get started. And I want to take you on a journey with a 71-year-old male who's still working as a mechanic. And his past medical history is he was treated with tuberculosis in about the 1970s with a full regimen and eradicated. He also had a history of symptoms consistent with chronic sinusitis. And in 2016, he had epistaxis, which actually required a blood transfusion. He's a former smoker of 15 pack years, and his only medication right now is pantoprazole daily for gastritis. Our story begins as he presents to hospital with a three-week history of fevers, chills, arthralgias, and leg swelling. In hospital, he was told this is likely an infection. He was given one dose of IV ANSEF, and he returned the next day with bilateral tender petechiae of the lower extremities, both upper and lower, some of them coalescing into purpura, and he was admitted to internal medicine for workup of this condition. So I'm interested in um, your initial thoughts and how you'd like to pursue this bilateral petechiae of his lower extremities. Wow, what a bang. Jeez. <laughs> right off the bat. No, no, no right foreplay for you. <laughs> um, yeah, take me to dinner first, Peter. You got I'm, warm- I'm already smoking, guys. I'm already smoking. <laughs> you got to warm me up a little bit. Um, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna fire off a few thoughts. So, uh, the remote history of TB is always interesting. I can't yet like tie it to anything else that you've told me, but. It's always something that I park, like that I highlight star star. I'm in, I'm going to be interested in that possibly in the future. In this case, when a rheumatologist tells me about sinusitis that is so severe that re- that someone requires a blood transfusion from it, I wonder about like an ankylovasculitis. But obviously, there's not a whole lot else here to support that. And then the other story sounds like like also possibly a vasculitis, uh, purpura with petechia on the legs, like a possibly a leukocytoclastic vasculitis, but then obviously that doesn't point us anywhere specific. So I, those are just like the sort of the areas of medicine that are pinging in my head right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sounds like you're concerned about the possibility of a vasculitis but, in but a guy with chronic sinusitis. Just, yeah. Can you give us, ju- you, you said painful uh, purpura or, or just palpable purpura? Tender petechiae, some of them coalescing into purpura. I see. Tender. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay. So that that really is, uh, it It would be unusual for just plain petechiae purpura to be have pain associated with them. What are you thinking mm-hmm. of there, Bay? Well, I guess, I, I guess the, the issue of tenderness, I mean, this is not Berger's disease, although he's a smoker. I mean, it's, I shouldn't say it's not Berger's, but I mean, he's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thrombophlebitis associated with these things, but it, this is not... It, it, it's hard to put the pain and the or the tenderness and the purpura together at this point, but it, it just doesn't come across as simple. Or it's not simple. It doesn't as as simply leukocytoclastic vasculitis. So okay. maybe it's an what infection. About, what about for you, Danny? Like what? So obviously you have a much more elaborated approach to a presentation like this than than I have. Like what? What are you? What's kind of ringing in your mind without maybe spoiling it for everyone? <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know the, the the end of this case, but 
yeah, I, I think when I when I hear about like purpura at all or or petechiae, one is to make sure that there's no like platelet disorder coagulopathy, and that is like just the entry point into then then saying okay, if it's not that, then it is likely to be LCV as long as we've correctly identified the rash, and then the decision about what it, it, it's like a cough. So it's like what what's the cause of the LCV, and there the differential is enormous medications, infection, post-infection of, you know, a huge swath of uh, autoimmune diseases, vasculitis being one of them related to malignancy, uh, all sorts of stuff. So I think that like, it's, it's such a broad symptom, even though it is a, it is kind of a specific clinical feature. So I don't think it nails things down. I agree with you, Steph, like the history of sinusitis and severe epistaxis and presenting with like this uh, constitutional picture. Yep, I totally worry about some kind of underlying ankyvasculitis that is like that is like midway on my list for sure, um, and and I think I want uh, biopsies of the petechiae to make sure that we have the diagnosis right and also to for some immunofluorescence, see if there's an IgA component to it. Yeah, you've all picked up on salient features that I was hoping you would. The history of TB, sinusitis, epistaxis, constitutional symptoms, mentioned the atypical features, which is of course a theme in these difficult cases. And then uh, Dan, you alluded to some of the workup that you wanted to happen, including a skin biopsy and immunofluorescence. So that brings me to mm-hmm. leukocytoclastic vasculitis. You know, this comes into hospital and it's always a question of how much do we want to work up? What investigations do we send? Do we do the biopsy? So I'd like to hear from all of you which investigations you are interested in in this gentleman and whether or not you would do a biopsy up front. Mm. So his presentation to hospital was fever, chills, and arthralgia. And leg swelling. He got IV ANCEF, and then he had these petechiae purpura. This is one leg or both legs that were swollen? Both legs swollen. You know, I think like you, you can often see a lot of like like skin edema or like fascial edema with like the the LCV. So you know, the leg swelling, I I kind of have to like see it for myself. Is it like an edematous state leg swelling, or it's like swelling around where the rash is, sort of deal? Do we have that sort of information? Yeah, like it's are we wondering swelling. about nephrotic syndrome, sort of deal, or heart failure, sort of deal? Mm-hmm. Good thought. So you're taking that leg swelling and trying to address that on top of the rash. So I can tell you that the swelling is around the area of the rash. And what investigations are you interested in? I can give but you some I think of those. it's it's fair to say that at this point, we probably should just ask for some basic investigations. It's I mean that you would have that information. It's before we become more specific. So I think that it would be important. Make sure his platelets are fine. Make sure his urine is fine. Make sure his renal fun. You know, just to do the a sort of the same systemic screen biochemically with this systemic disease before we get into specific investigation. Perfect. And and this is something that I wanted to bring up because in a lot of dermatology offices that are referred leukocytoclastic vasculitis, you know, a lot of investigations aren't done. But of course, there's a referral bias to the dermatology office if it's single system derm, not a lot of other symptoms going on. But in internal medicine, we are referred these people with constitutional symptoms and other things. And so the workup is quite a bit more extensive. So we've decided to work this guy up and um, I can give you some of those basic investigations that you wanted. The white cell count is 6.4 and eosinophils are 0.8 with normal being less than 0.7 on this assay. His hemoglobin is low at 98, it's normocytic, and his platelets are low at at 143. Are there anything else that you wanted? You mentioned the urine, which is bland. INR, PTT, or? INR, PTT, normal. Is creatinine? 
Creatinine is normal, 63. And no, no evidence of hepatitis or abnormal liver enzymes. Good point. So hepatitis B core antibody positive, hepatitis B surface antibody 188, and this is evidence of a past infection which is cleared, and he's not currently infected. The viral load was unremarkable. Hepatitis C negative, and his liver enzymes are normal. You know, there, there's a standard workup, and the, the problem with giving the standard workup for this, it's the standard for everything that presents with these different streams of manifestation. So we go, through, we do HIV, we do hepatitis B, we have Hep C, we do VDRL. But in this specific case, although it's it's tempting to suggest that TB in the past and a sinusitis may be contributing, my concern would have been, my initial concern would be Neisseria meningitidis. That would be my my first concern with this guy. So I would get blood cultures and um, I would certainly treat him even though, I mean, obviously I don't know how unwell he is, but for that possibility. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Steph, was that, on, was that on your mind? No. That hadn't really, that hadn't crossed my mind either. I guess I always thought of like the Neisseria meningitis rash as more purpuric than petechial, like, like kind of much larger, uh, much more fulminant. Um, than what we're hearing here, but that's that's a really interesting thought that, that well, hadn't crossed my mind yet. I mean, it, it, obviously we're not seeing it, but I mean it's coalescing into to larger lesions, and yeah, absolutely. The, the the initial presentation of this disease at times looks really benign until it doesn't look benign. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Great. I, I think those are all great points. And again, with leukocytoclastic vasculitis, it's more the picture that it presents with, and. You know, in this case, I'll give you some more additional investigations that were done. It was quite a thorough workup. Um, his C3 and C4 were both low at 0.66 and 0.04, respectively. His rheumatoid factor was elevated at 37. Anca serologies were negative. CRP was 137. Cryoglobulins negative. Antiphospholipid antibodies negative. ANA negative. And his SPEP revealed a monoclonal band of IgG kappa at 19 grams per liter, normal being 17, uh, sorry, 7 to 14. And his UPEP was negative. Now he also went on to have so, a so CT. How, how, how much was the monoclonal that you, you've given us as IgG, but what's what was the percentage of monoclonal? How, how, how much did it measure? I just have 19 grams per liter, that monoclonal band. That's really, I think I think you're measuring IgG there and not, I don't think that's the monoclonal. Well, that's huge. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay. Sorry, well, you, it's your case, but I, I'm just saying yeah. at 10 or 12 would be high. It'd be very high. Okay. I might have to go back on that one, but yeah. And I was going to say this, a CT abdomen was also performed given his age and constitutional symptoms, which actually showed an enlarged spleen at 14.7 centimeters. There was lymphadenopathy at the porta hepatis as well. And so what are your thoughts about these investigations? I, I honestly don't know that I would have... Uh kind of led with a CT abdo. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not sure that that was really on on my mind quite yet. That was that's a little what, bit of a surprise test for me. And that's one of the risks with ordering tests. Um, you, you come up with things that you don't expect to find. Indeed. I was not expecting that specifically. Um, that's interesting. Um, so so you said this. So the, the major features are the C3, C4, low rheumatoid factor, elevated, and an abnormal monoclonal band on SPEP negative UPEP, and we don't have serum-free light chains. Correct. Okay. But so we have like negative, negative cryos. Yes. yes. But, but this, in, in, a, in a different era, this would be immune complex disease. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and what what when, do you mean by that? When, well, when we couldn't measure immune complexes, when we when mm-hmm. rheumatoid factor being positive, the C three and C four being low, what the what the antigen for the immune complex was was still debatable. But I don't think at this point we would make a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis with a vasculitis. I mean, so to me, this would be an immune complex, and I guess the immune the antigen in this case could be the monoclonal protein. I think yeah, that's a great thought as well. And I can tell you that there's no symmetrical joint swelling that would be consistent with rheumatoid arthritis, but that monoclonal band I think uh, can't be ignored at this point. I also like throw out there like we do have to be careful with negative cryos. That's such a hinky test yeah. that if you do think someone has cryos, then they have cryo and until you you find something else, but it really does have to have like the the right clinical picture. This person has like fever slash chills, arthralgias, and purpura. So th- that could certainly be in keeping with cryo still. The most common cause would be hepatitis C. I, I think we've actually talked about cryo before uh, on the podcast. Uh, it would be hepatitis C, uh, and this guy doesn't have that uh, by by your report. So the most common cause would be, would be out, and the rheumatoid factor really isn't that elevated. So I... Yeah, I, I, I'm putting that one in the, the back of my head for now, just uh, that if we don't find something else, we may resend the cryos or cryofibrinogens. What year was his blood transfusion from his epistaxis? It was two years prior to his presentation. But but his his monoclonal protein actually could be the antigen for the leukocytoclastic vasculitis. I mean, so that's certainly a possibility. And I, I don't think we're any closer. I think that he has non-specific. He has the equivalent in my mind. He has the equivalent of a C-reactive protein in a C-reactive spleen and a C-reactive lymph node. So he has evidence. I don't think it helps. I don't think it narrows the diagnosis into infection, inflammation, or neoplasia. At this point, we're still in the same ballpark, with the mm-hmm. exception of the monoclonal protein, which would put me more in the neoplastic area. So whether he's got a lymphoma or or myeloma or some other associated uh, illness with monoclonal protein, that would be my key log at this point. Okay. Did we get an Did we get an ANA with with that uh, initial upfront blood work? I might have missed it. it was negative. A N negative. A N A negative. Ah, okay. So what I can tell you from this admission, he was discharged three days later. And he was given a clinical diagnosis of leukocytoclastic vasculitis from IV ANSEF exposure, and a skin biopsy was not done at this time. And he was referred for outpatient follow-up for internal medicine. Oh, I'm confused. I thought he came in with vasculitis, or, or sorry, with presumed LCV and got the ANSEF to treat that. Am I, did I mishear the order of the story? He came in with fevers, chills, arthralgias, and leg swelling. And then through Emerge, he got one dose of IV ANSEF oh, and then represented oh, okay. one day later with the petechiae and purpura. Ah, my bad. Okay. But again, I, I think the, the the critical piece of information, which isn't related to the ANSEF, is the, the monoclonal protein. Mm-hmm. So that, and that so, to me is, that that's the, as I say, that's that's the one thing that it's very hard to fit for all these other bundles that that appear. Mm -hmm. And so that takes us to one month later, he was referred to hematology for bicytopenia and this monoclonal protein. And the immunoglobulin showed an IgG of 29.6, normal IgA and IgM. And then it was the SPEP, which showed a total protein of 72 grams per liter with the monoclonal band at 19 grams per liter. Okay. 
And again, the urine protein was negative. And hematology took a look at this and said, this is most consistent with MGUS. And at that appointment, it was noted that he'd lost about 10 pounds over the month, but his rash had resolved. And a repeat white cell count was 4.0 with eosinophils of 1.3. And that's up from 0.8 a month later. Did hematology have any concern about that, about the the rising eosinophils? Not at this point. A bone marrow biopsy was not indicated. He had normal calcium, normal creatinine, no signs of multiple myeloma, and the differential was mentioned that included um, MGUS, myeloma, lymphoproliferative disease, amyloid, or POMS. But again, no neurologic compromise, and his constitutional symptoms and rash had resolved at that appointment. So I would take issue with hematology. In a, in a patient who's 71 years old, who presents with this degree of, of monoclonal protein, to diagnose MGUS, which is, a, which is a diagnosis of exclusion, to me is really ignoring everything else that's happening. So would and you go the, for a bone marrow biopsy? This man what should, would be absolutely. This man should have had a marrow, from my point of view, he should have had a marrow at the time he this was recognized, and certainly was, and, and following that, now we have other information that he's got uh, cell lines that are decreased and eosinophilia, all of which point to a hematologic component. So I, I think that uh, we can do other investigations, but I certainly would have done a marrow. Yeah, Steph, what do you think? Honestly, I'm a little lost. Um, like now, I'm trying to integrate the monoclonal peak and the eosinophilia, and those are like the two sort of critical features that I'm. I'm trying to put together and I'm right now not able to put them together, but I, I do feel like those will turn out to be the mo- the most salient features. Dur- during these recordings, I try to stay off Google and I'm, and I'm staying off Google right now, but boy, oh boy, in real life, I'd be on Google like a, like a rat on a hot dog right now. <laughs> As we yeah. all would. The image, <laughs> the, the image is something I've never thought about, but okay. <laughs> So yeah. why don't I take, take you to four months after his initial presentation? Four as you take months. Us there, as you take us there, is, in, is he clinically stable? Everything else has disappeared and we're just following all these abnormalities or something else happening? It's clinically stable. After the uh, appointment that I just mentioned, he was given repeat blood work on a one-month basis with a diagnosis of MGUS. And his constitutional symptoms have resolved, rash had resolved, but he continued to have this persistent eosinophilia. And four months after his initial presentation, he had more shortness of breath on exertion, started to have nose bleeding on like a twice a week basis and more profound fatigue. His white cells were 7.8. His eosinophils were 3.6. Hemoglobin had recovered to 131. Platelets were 142. And so at this point, just to summarize, we have a chronic sinus congestion that the patient reports epistaxis that has now reoccurred, persistent eosinophilia, his initial presentation with petechiae, and then these things that, Dr. Voya, you pointed out, are not in keeping, like MGUS, bicytopenia, and we have this finding of splenomegaly. And so you're dealing with this, perhaps in an internal medicine clinic. What are your thoughts? Um, you know, so, so except for the, the monoclonal peak, I think this could all be in keeping with an ANCA vasculitis, and I'd be looking up what the sensitivity of that test is. And my, my sense is that it, obviously it's not 100%. So mm-hmm. I'd probably be like planning on repeating it and calling Danny, probably. 
mm-hmm. honestly, like I, I'm not even joking. That's probably what I would do. I didn't think you were joking until you said you weren't joking. <laughs> well, no, you know, I think you know, I, I realize I'm not on this show for uh, for my brains. I'm here for the occasional <laughs> levity, but uh, that in real life, that is what I would do. I would repeat the Ancas. Um, I mean, the the eosinophils are getting high. Like this is when I would probably start to think about other eosinophilic disorders. Um, you know, he's got maybe some new pulmonary complaints, it sounds like. So, you know, it, again, if this was eosinophilic pneumonitis, I wouldn't expect necessarily a bunch of uh, sinus congestion from that. I, I, I'm To me, this feels like an ankyovasculitis still, uh, but but I am a little bit, I'm a little bit sort of thrown off by the initial negative anka testing, recognizing mm-hmm. that the sensitivity is, is sub-perfect. Yeah, but you I mean, want to repeat it. Yeah, I, I, I do I, want to repeat it, yeah. But but the other thing, I mean, I think it's I, I would I think Steph's approach is sound, and if the anchor comes back negative, it's still possible he's got a an anchor negative vasculitis with an anchor just being the serology being negative. But I'm more concerned about his other conditions leading to the the potential of vasculitis, and I think that we can dance around this. But I think we're going to need a marrow for all of the differential, including the lymphoma leukemia component that could be heralded by his eosinophilia. I was just saying to myself, if in the next two minutes, Barry doesn't ask for a biopsy, I'm going to eat this microphone. I agree with both of you. I would repeat the ANCA, I think, like for, for EGPA, which is where we're looking with the elevating eosinophilia which could also be seen in in like GPA, but typically at much, much lower levels. Um, the sensitivity is between 40 and 60%. And it's 90% of the time when it's positive, it's going to be MPO. Um, so that would be the pattern I would be looking for. But that's essentially just 50-50 that it's positive, like around there, right? So it being negative definitely doesn't really offer much uh, argument against it. I think with the new respiratory symptoms, I'm really curious about the nature of them because asthma is present in over 90, in most series, like over 95%. So are they asthma type features? Is he wheezing? Is it, is it an obstructive pattern or does he have pulmonary infiltrates? Um, would really, I think, help us move towards a diagnosis of vasculitis. The things that are not sitting perfectly with me would be the uh, having a monoclonal antibody um it doesn't really fit with the typical SPEP pattern for a vasculitis it really would just kind of show the general like uh, polyclonal gammopathy because it's just a generic inflammatory state it's not quite so hyper specific to give you that monoclonal peak and the splenomegaly also not a common feature of eGPA so I think there are like there's lots of there's lots of stuff moving towards it and a couple of things pointing away from it. So I think we have to hold those in our heads diagnostically at the same time. Um, but I I do think I think a, a bone marrow is is certainly kind of on on the list. I kind of wish that we got that uh, that uh, biopsy when he had the LCV, but that, like it might have shown some eosinophilic infiltrate, but more likely than not, it was not going to tell us what the diagnosis was. So I, I'm not sure that that's a huge missed opportunity of any kind. I like where and this I is would headed. Ju- I, I would just add that I would hope the ANCA came back negative because if the ANCA came back positive, both of you would have ordered the ANCA and I wouldn't have. How would this have helped you? 
All right. So we have two verses, two verses, one, and let me antagonize your souls. The repeat (laughs) PR, the repeat PR3 anchor was positive at 1.3. And upon repeat, it was 2.3. Now this is PR3 anchor, MPO negative. Okay. So I posed the question and now you guys have the answer you were both looking for, which I wouldn't have done, but now I'm interested to hear how, how this helps you. Take it easy, smarty pants. I'm not. Um, <laughs> I'm t- sorry, you're here for levity, not for brevity. <laughs> okay. Okay, Danny. Now what have we done? Now we've now we've ordered a test. Yeah, whatever. So before, but, before we get into it, it's it's this <laughs> eosinophilia that has quite a wide differential. And we're back in the same spot we were with the leukocytoclastic vasculitis, a wide differential for both of them. And both of them contain benign entities. Both of them contain very sinister entities. And and you do have to think about that. I mean, eosinophilia can be caused by vasculitis of a variety of causes, like you talked about drugs. You can have hyper-eosinophilic asthma. You can have idiopathic eosinophilic vasculitis, like EGPA without asthma, hypersensitivity, infection, Infections, malignant causes, um, sarcoid, IBD, and the list goes on. And so we're left with a, ri- a wide differential in both cases. And in both cases, we were pushed and we had difficulty deciding which tests were relevant and we argued about which tests were done. And so we are left in this awkward scenario where we have test results that some of us wanted, some of us didn't, but we have to deal with it. And if we can transition into you know this question of EGPA, which all of you are thinking and brought up, with the PR3 ANCA, I'm interested, Danny, what, what are your thoughts about EGPA with some of these atypical features that we're seeing, and perhaps about the classification versus diagnosis of EGPA and how to move forward? Yeah, I, you know, I think my approach at this point would be to stall until I go off service, and and someone else smarter <laughs> than me comes on and figures it out. But but if this uh, if that wasn't a, an option, I would say PR three is still a pathologic antibody. Um, it is a fairly specific antibody. Not a ton of things make a PR three positive. Uh, sorry, when I said pathologic antibody, we don't know that it itself causes damage the same way we feel like double-stranded DNA itself kind of leads to the the activity in lupus, but it's really not supposed to be there. I'm, I'm still concerned about it, but then it puts it into the group of eGPA patients, like the 10% who may have a positive PR3. So it's still in keeping with vasculitis. It's just not the pattern. It's not the slam dunk pattern I was hoping to see. Not all of this is um, sorting the way I would like. I think I, so now I think we need maybe to clarify some of his other symptoms. So the sinusitis, does he have polyposis, which would be more a feature of eGPA than GPA? Does he have any features if we did a CT uh, sinuses to suggest, oh, actually he's just had a kind of slow grumbling uh, fungal infection or, or, uh, or something that could also give you significant eosinophilia if left untreated. So I, I might try and clarify some of those other symptoms. I don't think I am ready at all to say, oh, okay, PR3 positive. He has ankyovasculitis for sure. There's still atypia in, in this case. So I, I would try and sit on my hands uh, a little bit as long as he is stable enough. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I can tell you he's short of breath on exertion. On physical exam, there's really no crackles or wheezes that you can appreciate. Looking at the nose, you certainly don't see obvious polyps or a, a septal perforation. 
And are you ready to send him for some of the respiratory investigation CTs that you had mentioned? Big time. Please. All right. So you send him to respirology and he has pulmonary function testing, which is absolutely normal. There's no <laughs> obstructive features. He has a CT of his sinuses, which show no chronic sinusitis, no evidence of acute sinusitis, and moderate rightward deviation of the nasal septum. And is there anything else that you want at this time? CT chest? That would be great. Normal. <laughs> Danny, Barry so, is seething right now. He's like, if you two jerk-offs don't get a biopsy of something in the next minute, Barry's going to throw his computer across the room. It's going to freak. So, I, so I, of, I just, of you know, the only thing I would say is that that we 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 tumble into these things at the end of the time. We sometimes get what we want, but it, again, it, to me, it doesn't narrow down it, it doesn't help us to make ab the absolute diagnosis and and we may not make the diagnosis in this case we may end up with a, a multiple component that could be this or could be that and then and we'll end up with our friend prednisone uh, going to bat but still we have opportunity and i agree with the respiratory workup but we have opportunity but first of all i guess the the first thing i would do obviously i've suggested the, the biopsy of the marrow but but it doesn't make sense to me with normal pulmonary function studies and a normal CT of his chest and a normal CT of his sinuses. I don't understand his shortness of breath. So well, maybe I try to, yeah, yeah. yeah. So maybe yeah, yeah. I would try to clarify that and pursue that symptom because that's his only symptom. The rest of the stuff were, it's bothering us. Maybe not so much him. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think we need to investigate that hard a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to uh, highlight that for like, in, if any of the sort of people listening to this show are uh, on the junior end of the spectrum, this is something that I definitely always have appreciated about Barry, which is that he he's very quick to highlight. So there are sometimes a problem that the patient has that, that really interests us and intrigues us and captures our imagination and our attention. But Barry has always been good about staying focused on the, we, we can follow those things for sure, but he's very disciplined about staying focused on the complaint that the patient has. Uh, and I don't mean that in some airy fairy hokey way. What I mean is like, he thinks that the most valuable clues are going to be when we talk to the patient, when we examine the patient, and when we orient our care around what the patient is bringing in. And so I, I, I really, I think that's a, a golden tip to be a more accurate and thoughtful diagnostician is is to keep in mind that that the we may have our own diagnostic agenda, but if we lose track of what the patient is bringing to the table and what they're complaining about, we're probably going to miss something important. I think that's a great point. And so let me continue this case. Um, you'd mentioned you wanted an echocardiogram. He did get one within a couple of months, which showed a left ventricular ejection fraction of 61%, mild diastolic dysfunction with no valvular abnormalities, no wall motion defects. And his his pro, his prodromes kept on happening without a diagnosis. Shortness of breath on exertion, without objective findings, fatigue. His CRP five months after his initial presentation was two hundred and twenty eight. His PR three ANCA two point three, and that has been persistent, and he still has this persistent eosinophilia. And Peter, Peter, there, can you I interrupt just for a second? Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming that in his pulmonary investigations, we did. Uh, a rule out for PE as well. Is that correct? A CT angio of the chest, abdomen, pelvis was performed. Um, that's a little bit later, but I can tell you that there was no evidence of PE right. at any okay. point. Yeah, fine. 
And his, and his pulmonary pressures were measured at some point? There was no TR jet, but it was assumed that the right ventricular pressures were normal. And all we have is that echo. And what were so you getting at, at there, Steph? What was on your mind? Well, just, you know, sort of recurrently short of breath or shortness of breath on exertion with normal LV function, normal parenchyma, normal PFTs, pulmonary hypertension would be like a reasonably mm-hmm. common cause. Yeah. But now we don't have that either. I'm getting a yeah. little frustrated, like six on 10 frustrated here, Peter. So you got to throw me a bone here pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, has it, I mean, with it, sorry, he's he's got diastolic dysfunction, which we've kind of, we've heard about, but that's not normal. There's no obvious reason. Uh, the commonest reason we would see is hypertension, and we've, we weren't told he's hypertensive. So could he have a restrictive cardiomyopathy? I mean, do we need to do an MRI of his heart with his eosinophilia and other symptoms, or are we content to say his cardiac function is normal? Yeah, that's a good with point. MRI of the heart, you're wondering about an infiltrating eosinophilic disorder? Infiltrating disorder, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I'm interested in your threshold for diagnosis and treatment of condition at this point. I hear that you want a biopsy in tissue and this is real life and it hasn't happened yet. And so we have classification criteria for vasculitis, but diagnosis is another beast. And I think that um, it's important to make that distinction. Whereas classification criteria is used for heterogeneous, rare diseases in order to study these populations, we have to call AGPA something and lump these patients together. However, in the office, you have the ability to make a diagnosis in a patient that may not meet classification criteria. And so just with that in mind, this is a guy now who's eight months out from his initial presentation, no clear diagnosis. Would you be offering treatment? Would you, again, pursue a biopsy? What are your thoughts here? I always worry about that approach of um, like, I'm going to like, obviously there there are times when you reach a treatment threshold when perhaps you haven't met a diagnostic threshold, but that's a super uncomfortable moment to be in. And I think that like that would typically take the form of someone is dying or someone is progressively worsening towards dying or towards disability. So he, if he was having progressive mononeuritis multiplex, and let's say that wasn't, you know, that wasn't, um, didn't help us solve the case. Uh, yeah, like, at some point, we, we can't just say like, well, we don't know what you have. So we're not going to give you anything. I, I, I guess, I hate that as CRPs 200. But I think I would want to kind of have a look at him and see how he's actually doing. If he's doing very poorly, then I probably would meet a treatment threshold, not yet a diagnostic threshold. Mm-hmm. But the only thing I'd add to that is that usually when we get into this situation, we have a, we have a potpourri of uh, symptoms and a potpourri of investigations, all of which could be this, could be that, but we have no way of getting closer to what it could be. But we're not at that stage yet because we still have things we could do to try and elucidate a diagnosis. So I think it would be wrong to treat him for whatever still having things outstanding in our diagnostic cascade. I, I think I agree with, with Danny and with Barry, um, maybe if for a different reason. I, I think he's not dying. And so for that reason, I agree with Danny. Uh, we still have other tests. And for that reason, I agree with Barry. And, and I guess as a combination, you know, if we start treating now, we may really muck up our ability to diagnose him accurately. Like I could imagine giving this man prednisone or something, you know, and and then three months from now, He's not quite right. His blood tests aren't quite right. And we're just, now we don't, 
now we don't really know. Or he develops a complication from the treatment and then we're really stuck. So I'd be in favor of trying to pin this one down with more accuracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point of trying to get the diagnosis before you muddy the water and, and treat him if you think you have time. Now, between eight to 10 months after his initial diagnosis, he has seen hematology, rheumatology, another subspecialty rheumatology and vasculitis, and everything is pointing towards a diagnosis of EGPA presumed based on his symptoms. And so he is started on prednisone 50 milligrams for one month, and he had a repeat CT abdomen of his spleen to follow up on that enlargement. And from 14.2 centimeters, it is now 19.2 centimeters with a small infarction. Yeah, it was a time to pull out the ferritin guns. <laughs> so he then progresses to have 20 pounds of weight loss in the next one and a half months, black stools, his glucose is out of control on prednisone, and he's having fevers. He's admitted to hospital. He's found to have salmonella bacteremia, as well as his eosinophil count, which is still 4.0 after a month of prednisone. I'd say like that that feels almost exclusionary for eGPA. Um, the eosinophilia of eGPA should be really responsive to prednisone and still no obstructive lung disease like that puts it and the wrong ANCA. So he's kind of fitting into like the percent of the percent of the percent to fit for eGPA at this point. Obviously, like uh, we can we can kind of say that through uh, uh, the perspective of time. But uh, yeah, what gets worse with lots of prednisone? Um, certainly like worried about, uh, you know, the parasitic fungal infections would certainly be on my mind. And that huge spleen, yeah, we've not excluded hematologic malignancy entirely or at all. Well, what, we, what we have shown is that there are complications to prednisone and now he's mm -hmm. living the one of the complications. But we're, again, we're not closer and he's progressing. You know, he's got more intra-abdominal pathology and he's now sick. And so at this point, he's in hospital. You have him in your grips. All the subspecialties are just a call away. What's the one test that you guys want? Ooh, well, what's the one test? And just I'm to recap. Get... Okay. <laughs> I was going to take a big swing at it. Big yeah. whiff. <laughs> I just wanted to recap because this is complicated. He's a guy with constitutional symptoms, persistent eosinophilia, some epistaxis, a low positive PR3 ANCA, persistent elevated CRP, who's having profound constitutional symptoms, salmonella bacteremia, fevers, and continuing bicytopenia with a large spleen. And so, Dan, you're going and, to give sorry, us your big home run. monoclonal protein. Sorry, I don't mean to interject, but and a monoclonal protein. I'm glad you brought that up. Thank and you. So, Dan, what, what was your home run investigation? Well, I, I changed it. I, I want a bone marrow biopsy for this guy, actually. Okay. And Dr. Kasson? Uh, I th I agree with Dan. Yes. Yeah. I think if, and, if, and if that's non-diagnostic, I mean, <laughs> honestly, I, I've had a couple of cases, a couple of really nightmarish cases over the last decade where the, something like this ended up in a splenectomy. And so if the bone marrow biopsy is, you know, unfruitful and if he continues to go down the tubes... I will uh, beg probably three surgeons to take a man's spleen. Great point. Totally it's agree. always planning a, planning ahead to see if this test is negative, if it's positive, then what? And that's part of what we do in internal medicine a lot of the time when working up someone. So 
I'll stop teasing everyone. And a bone marrow biopsy was done. And this is actually 14 months after his initial presentation. And the initial read on the bone marrow biopsy is a high-grade hematologic neoplasm with predominant eosinophilic infiltration. And this was sent to the BC Cancer Agency for further evaluation. And there was found to be a bone marrow consistent with atypical cells, granulomatoid aggregus infiltrates, and a diagnosis of aggressive systemic mastocytosis with underlying malignancy was made based on that quaternary opinion on the bone marrow biopsy. You know, it's interesting. I just am working up a case exactly like this. And the tryptase in this in this particular case is positive. And it's the cytogenetics that really nail it because there's nothing that suggests mastocytosis, but the, ba- the background and, and even with that, that disease, it's still, it, with with that observation, it still could be eosinophilic leukemia. It could still be any one of a number of hematologic disorders. Yeah, wow, is, Peter. I mean, I, I don't have enough of, a, of an illness script for systemic mastocytosis, but for me, I thought it had to do with like being allergic to a lot of things, getting weird rashes. And so I didn't hear any of that here. This was like 100% not even on the radar. But I, but Stefan, to support that, I, I don't think it, it could be on anybody's radar except if you knew the pathology because it's the pathology that's it's the suggestive. There's really nothing clinical. He may have mast cell infiltration, but he doesn't have he doesn't have mast cell systemic disease that you would recognize it from an illness script. So I think he falls in that. I think that's one of the differentials in someone who has this problem and has a neoplasm, some like a lymphoma, he may have that and it would direct therapy, but I don't think, I don't see any clues. And except for the case I've just talked about, uh, mentioned, I wouldn't have known. This has all happened in the last month to me. That yeah. That's so crazy. Like, I, you know, I, I was at a lecture a few years ago on like the, the investigations of hyperosinophilia as mimics of uh, EGPA. And part of the workup that they put on the board there, in in addition to like the usual stuff you'll do, CBC and smear and and uh, like B12, and if you're worried about uh, you know a bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, looking for that, and hyperosinophilic syndrome was a serum tryptase. And like when I saw that during the lecture, I was like, how how often is that going to lead you to the diagnosis? Like how often is like should should that be part of an actual? Uh, pre-printed order workup for hyperosinophilia. And I can't say that um, I have seen that as part of even hematology's workup for eosinophilia off the bat, right? Like without other symptoms to suggest mastocytosis. So I I don't think I would have solved this earlier on. I don't think that would have been on my list either. I think I think both of you would have solved it because I think that really this this is to me this is more sophisticated this is more a more sophisticated diagnosis that we've caught we've got I'm sorry 14 months or how many many months after initial presentation but the initial presentation independent of all of this is a monoclonal gammopathy a monoclonal protein that is sky high in a 71 year old and I think that's you wouldn't have you wouldn't have accepted that Mm-hmm. Is that, do we know now in retrospect, like, was that, uh, was that monoclonal protein a manifestation of mastocytosis? Like that, I also, I don't know that those things go together, but that's because of like lack of content knowledge on my part. Or does he actually have, like, he has MGUS and, and he also has mastocytosis. 
I think he's so, got a neoplasm that that has mastocytosis features, but I don't think he has systemic mastocytosis. And I think this is a primary hematologic malignancy, as part and part of that is his monoclonal protein. Mm-hmm. There were less than 5% clonal plasma cell concentration in the bone marrow biopsy. And so the associated malignancy part of his diagnosis was not predominant uh, given that reading. So he is now working with a diagnosis of systemic mastocytosis with associated hematologic neoplasm, but that that's MGUS and it's not a predominant feature. And I just wanted to shed light on some of your concerns here that this is a very rare diagnosis. The incidence is actually unknown because of how uncommon it is. And it's excessive mast cell proliferation and accumulation. You, there are different clinical manifestations of this, and a couple of you touched on it. Um, one of them is recurrent episodes that resemble allergic reactions or anaphylaxis. And urticaria angiogema are not usual in that presentation. You can have anaphylaxis after a bee sting. You can have sclerotic or lytic bone lesions. And then finally, you can have an adult who presents with hematologic abnormalities, splenomegaly, fatigue, and weight loss. And in that presentation, eosinophilia is quoted to be present about 25% of the time. Now, what's interesting is that we started off with LCV, and there's something called urticaria pigmentosa or macular papular cutaneous mastocytosis that if you look at it, it's little petechiae in the lower extremities, and you can have a derriere sign where if you distort the lesion, it activates mast cells and you get urticaria or redness around that area. Now, this wasn't documented uh, initially, but I'd be interested to see if that was the case on initial presentation with his LCV. Wow. I I had not ever heard of that sign, but I, I mm-hmm. do you think biopsy then would have actually potentially shown us mastocytosis in the first place? So skin biopsy is used with direct immunofluorescence and immunohistochemical staining, and you can see mast cell aggregates in the skin. So maybe if that skin biopsy was performed, it's not perfect, but it might have provided a clue early on. I think yeah, that that, Danny, that we, feels... We, we would have nailed this in the first week, Danny. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but, but I, think I think you would have. I, 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 I think so you would have. I think, I think that there were things to biopsy in the first week. And I think derriere sign is, is something that it's pretty nonspecific. And I don't know. The sensitivity of that for mastocytosis is not high. And it's, mm-hmm. it's positive in a number of other diseases as well. And so if you ever have anyone and you scratch the skin around or just stroke the skin, you'll get urticaria sometimes. But that's that's not diagnostic. And so in mastocytosis has a has a spectrum. So there can be localized mastocytosis, there can be systemic mastocytosis with symptoms, and, and there can be a, a mast cell leukemia, if you will, uh, which is which is a different but I, I don't know how hematology is classifying this, but it's yep. the, or the, the treating. Sub- yeah, that's right. The subtypes, you can have indolent, you can have aggressive systemic, you can have the mast cell leukemia, or this systemic mastocytosis with associated neoplasm. And, you know, for this gentleman, I contacted him a couple of weeks ago, he's still struggling with accepting treatment, um, adherence to treatment, follow up, and um, it's kind of an in and out of hospital situation for him, given a lot of different complications he had, one of which is ascites. And on the tap, there were abundant eosinophils in his acidic fluid. Yeah. So we're seeing this pop up a lot of different ways in this gentleman right now. There were there were a bunch of red herrings in this case. And I, I think like it, it felt early on kind of easy to go with 
an anchor vasculitis, even with the negative anchor. Um, and then when the anchor became positive, it, it, it still felt somewhat easy to, to be like, well, you know, that's atypical, but still sounds like vasculitis. Uh, and, and I'm glad we didn't land on that, but that is a really challenging case. Really tough one. Yeah. And there are a few things that I wanted to highlight in this case, um, of which a lot of you pointed out. And first, talking about differentials to problems and how we approach them and how we use differentials. Um, we talked a little bit about the classification versus diagnostic criteria of EGPA in particular, but there were always atypical features that made us uncomfortable with that diagnosis. And then finally, a couple of cognitive biases, um, you know, diagnostic closure. I think there were a couple of instances where we closed on leukocytoclastic vasculitis as a drug exposure. We might have closed on EGPA and started treatment, um, but just trying to keep an open mind as we move through difficult, challenging, atypical cases like this and making sure that we don't anchor to a diagnosis, that we're always open for new clues that make us pursue what's going on and that we listen to the patient and what their symptoms and how they're responding um, to them. I think those are all important cases that I wanted to highlight with this unfortunate gentleman. So I, I think there's a couple other things I'd like to mention. This is not C anchor or P anchor negative, but it's anchor negative. And when we look at his skin lesions at the onset, he has some discomfort from his skin lesions. And again, that should have focused us a little bit more on doing something more than just accepting leukocytoclastic vasculitis, because it certainly could have been the uh, the given us the information by biopsying. And in, in this situation, I would expect uh, that the discomfort may well have been related to his underlying disease. We had uh, classic anchoring bias. Yes. <laughs> As I said, P anchor or, or C anchor. Hey, we found the name for our episode. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Thanks Thank a lot, you Peter. All. That's a great case, Peter. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks, guys. That was really good. Thanks so much, Peter. That, uh, that was great. All right. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks to everyone who listened. I'm Daniel Ennis saying goodbye on behalf of Steph and Barry. Uh, we will have another episode coming out in just a couple of weeks. We are produced by Bronick Consulting. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.